At the really young level, it's important that you lay a foundation of, like you said, like black joy and black liberation and not so much slavery and oppression and all that. So you start, you know, your first day talking about love and empathy and respect, right? And then you get into diversity and globalism and then you get into trans affirming, queer affirming collective value. Um, and then you get into the whole idea of intergenerational black families, black villages, and then lastly, unapologetically black and black women. Hello and welcome to School Me, a podcast from the National Education Association. On this show, we talk to seasoned educators and experts to give new educators the tools they need to thrive in their careers. I'm your host, Natika Samuels. Schools aren't separate from society, so the struggles that we grapple with as adults deeply affect the lives of our students as well. Black Lives Matter at School is a national coalition organizing for racial justice in education. They encourage all educators, students, parents, unions, and community organizations to join together for a week of action during the first week of February each year. Today we welcome Denisha Jones, Director of Art of Teaching at Sarah Lawrence College, and Erica Strauss-Chavaria, a high school teacher from Maryland and board member of NEA and Racial Justice Now, to talk to us about Black Lives Matter at School, its week of action, and how educators can bring us social and racial justice lens to their practice. Thanks for coming on School Me, you guys. Denisha and Erica, can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and your path to education? I guess I'll start with you first, Denisha. Sure. I wanted to be a teacher since I was a little girl, and then I became a teacher and found out it's not what I thought I was going to be. <laughs> I uh, taught kindergarten in Washington, D.C., and that year was really challenging for lots of reasons, many because uh, the new school chancellor was instituting a lot of terrible reforms that we've seen grow from that time in 2003, and so I left the school and went off to grad school and kind of taught preschool instead of public school and then really found my niche in teacher education. And so I've been doing college professor for 15 years now um, at different universities. And so preparing teachers, early childhood teachers, is um, really just trying to push back against a lot of the privatization and neoliberal aspects of school reform. And Erica? So I did not grow up wanting to be a teacher. Uh, my mother was an educator and I thought I was destined to do something else. I had been in the education world via her, but I didn't have the greatest experience as a high school student, and there were aspects of school that I didn't relate to. I also realized that there were policies and practices that were happening in schools that were marginalizing and criminalizing black and brown students, and so as a student, I organized with other students to fight those policies that were happening and did walkouts and sit-ins and protesting and was attacked for that and backed up by the ACLU for a lawsuit, First Amendment lawsuit and won. And so needless to say, my relationship with my principal was not the greatest at that time either. And so I was definitely not thinking that I wanted to have anything to do with education after that experience. I ended up realizing later on in my life that I did want to be a teacher. I wanted to incorporate my human rights and civil rights work and my degree in that along with the love of Spanish language and culture. And so I did end up becoming a teacher. And in fact, I teach at the same high school that I graduated from. So I hope that as an educator, I give students the experience in high school that I never had. I really believe in myself as a social and racial justice teacher through the language of Spanish. And so that's what I try to bring into my classroom, always focusing on relationships, building relationships with kids, creating a safe space for my students in my classroom. All the racial justice and education work that I do and the relationships that I've found have really, um, really keep me going as an educator. 
So you touched on this a little bit, Erica, but was there a particular moment for either of you where you knew that it wasn't just enough for you to teach your subject matter and you needed to take another step to involve what's happening outside of the school and creeping into the school in the social justice and racial justice areas that you knew you needed to like do something else and, and bring that to your students? Was there a moment? Yeah, I think for me, that year teaching kindergarten, I always share this story, I, I realized I didn't want to become that type of educator. So I had a young boy who I, I heard in the beginning of the school year that his family had a, not a good history with the school. So they're that, his whole family went through the school and they didn't really do well. And he was in my class and he missed more than half the days of that kindergarten year. Like he was always absent. And when he did come to school, he was late or unprepared. And so, you know, one day he's in late and I'm trying to get him to do some work. And he's hungry, you know, and it's an hour till breakfast. And I said, well, you know, go downstairs in the cafeteria. You know where they keep the milk and cereal. It's like, just grab it and just bring it up here and eat it up here. And he comes back empty handed and he goes, they told me no, wait for lunch. And I was like, I'll be right back. So I go down there and I don't say anything. I just go, what are you doing? I'm like, he's hungry. Lunch is in an hour. He needs to eat breakfast so he can do some work. And I'm fighting with school people denying a five-year-old a meal because he didn't come to school on time. I didn't know five-year-olds were in charge of getting themselves to places on time. It wasn't his fault. He, he needed to eat. And I realized they didn't start out that way. 20 years ago, these people did not start out to say, I want to deny a five-year-old breakfast to teach him a lesson about being late. Did you have a moment where you felt a similar pull? I believe it was my first or second year of teaching. I teach very close to Baltimore City, and we have a lot of students that are from Baltimore City. And I had a student that had been um, transferred to my school. He went to live with an aunt in my school district because his father had been murdered by a police officer in Baltimore City, and his mother had recently passed away from cancer. And so he went to live with an aunt in my district and went to my school. He was really reserved and really just wanted, we, we were able to, to form a relationship, and he entrusted me with his story and told me that he really just wanted to graduate, that was his goal, he graduate and go on and do better things in life and he was gonna keep his head down and just do his work and that's what he wanted to do to get through school and so he could graduate. I think he made it pretty much throughout the whole year with no issues, no problems or anything and all of a sudden one day towards the end of the school year I hear a commotion in the hallway and I run outside to see what's going on and I see him on the ground being held down by a police officer in our building and being handcuffed and taken out of school. And it turns out that some other student made a comment about his mom and defensively he started hitting the student and the police officer grabbed him from the back and his natural reaction was to turn around and punch. And so he turned around to punch whoever was grabbing him, not knowing it was a cop that had been grabbing him. So they arrested him for a multitude of things, but they arrested him and dragged him off the campus in handcuffs. And I was screaming and trying to get them to stop. Um, I never heard from him again. There was no phone number that I could contact for him. And that moment was devastating to me. And I realized that I had seen police officers in schools when I was a student, and I was uncomfortable with that. And I know that a lot of my black and brown friends were also uncomfortable with seeing police, but I hadn't seen that level of brutality. And to see a student that I knew was a gem and was amazing and had been through so much in his life and really had this goal in his head, to see him being attacked forcefully and arrested and charged on school grounds, I knew that I couldn't stand for that. And that was not going to happen as long as we had people fighting against that. And so that was the moment for me. I always think of him every time I do anything. He is the one 
in my head. I wish I knew where he was and I wish I could contact him, but that was the moment for me, the pivotal moment of this is much bigger than just teaching a content. It's about fighting for students' lives. When you came to that point of both of your careers, did you take sort of baby steps into getting involved or was it just like a night and day, like I have to take action now? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, it was definitely baby steps. I mean, I, I still didn't quite understand like what was wrong with education that make teaching so difficult and learning for five-year-olds so difficult because it was hard for them to. When I went off to grad school in Indiana, I then you know started taking courses, reading more, and, and it started to come to form this picture of what was happening, right? That there all these changes were happening to make school not a place where anybody wanted to go, right? The curriculum mandates, the testing, um, the things that teachers were being forced to do. So it took a while of seeing it, and then connecting that to the bigger fights, right? Looking at you know a big stemming point for education activism was in around 2011. We saw what the governor in Wisconsin did, like with the teachers and the unions, and that was a big surge. But there was stuff that were before that. That what was happening, right? I remember going to a protest in San Diego and it was more about workers' rights, but there was a connection there to teachers and to education. And so it was slowly building like to see this this process responding to this movement building to respond to these different attacks and the different public sectors. And I think it took a while for it all to coalesce for me to see that this is, is all shared ground, you know, that you know the rights of workers and teachers and, and everyone is, is all part of the same struggle. I think it was a process for me. I mentioned that my mom was an educator and she was very much in the fight against privatization, corporate takeover, anti-standardized testing. She was in the world of literacy and also a teacher educator. So I kind of had a background to that through her, but to see how things manifested actually in a school building, like my Spanish curriculum, for example, using a textbook was nothing relatable to students. I realized that there was no social or racial justice component that had anything to do with the curriculum. And so I had background understanding and knowledge, but I guess after the first couple of years actually in the trenches and seeing what was happening in school, seeing the criminalization of kids daily, seeing educators that were giving misinformation to students, social studies classes that were teaching not correct history, and seeing that in front of me and actually being able to, to live that every day just pushed me forward to do a lot of work. There was a teacher in my building who was a teacher when I was a student, and she remembered the protests that we had done regarding some policies that were going to be negatively impacting black and brown students. And when she saw me, she pointed to me and she said, you, union, now go. And I remember her saying, like, you need to be a rep. We need to get you in this work. And so that's how I became involved in the union. I think from the relationships I formed outside of the school, Journey for Justice Alliance, Racial Justice Now, working with Save Our Schools, meeting Denisha, those were the moments when I made the larger picture connections, like how testing is also the origins are racist, and then how it relates to closing schools and how school closings relates to privatization. So all of those dots were connected. It was a process for that to connect all those dots, but you do see it manifesting in your school building, so you know what you're seeing is definitely, it comes to light you know, to visualize and to actually see what you're hearing actually happen. So how did you two meet? I met her mom first, so this is funny. Her mom and I, her mom's like, you stole my friend, Erica. And I'm, I'm still very much her mother's friend. But in 2011, I had moved back to Washington, D.C., and that was the first Save Our Schools march. And so, again, the impetus was that the, the Wisconsin teachers were pissed. They came in bus droves to D.C., so that really helped. It was a huge march and rally on the mall in Washington, D.C. And Matt Damon spoke. His mother's an early childhood teacher and friend of ours. Now. So I had volunteered there, and that's when I first met her mother. And then there were other events happening. At that Save Our Schools march, a lot 
lot of the grassroots groups we belong to formed around around then United Opt Out, which pushed back against testing, the Badass Teachers Association, which was just about giving teachers voice, still really active, defending the early years, a lot of smaller groups. I think it was, was it the Opt Out? One of the Opt Outs, uh, so the United Opt Out then did two Occupy Department of Ed. It's kind of not full on Occupy, we had like legal permits to be there, but that in the spirit of Occupy, we held each yeah. two years, we did rallies, and I think that was the first time that yeah. we had actually met, but I had met her mom before that. Yeah, my mom always <laughs> says that I steal all of her funds. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty funny. Because again, I, I wasn't going to be in education. My mom had been in, the, in this work forever, 30 plus years, and was one of the founding members and steering committee members of Save Our Schools and an organizer of that original 2011 March. So I, yeah. I met Denisha there, and a lot of the relationships I have are because of my mom, so she yeah. always yells at me. <laughs> you stole my friends. <laughs> we have a pretty large activism family. Yeah. Multi-generational. Yes. <laughs> this might have been talked about a little bit in the last thing we were talking about in terms of your baby steps or jumping all in to this work, but when in your careers did that begin? So School Me, we like to give new educators what they need. So we typically say within the first five years of the profession, because those are like the most critical years in terms of whether you're gonna stay in the classroom or not. When in your career did you start to get involved and work this into your life as an educator? My teaching as a teacher was three years. And so I won't say most of that was, it was there yet. I, I, I didn't know why I kept leaving the field, but that's why, because I wasn't kind of getting what I needed out of it. It wasn't, it, it wasn't lining up to what I thought teaching should be, but I guess, in my college teaching career, which was in 15 years, it was pretty early on because I was at Howard University um, as a faculty there when I was getting involved with Save Our Schools and Opt Out. And uh, I was trying to keep it quiet because I didn't know how it would be received. And then it turned out that the dean at the time was very glad that someone from Howard was being a part of that. And so she told everyone. And so I think it, you know, it developed for me early on in my, in my academic career. Had I known this, that I probably would have kept teaching in D.C. longer. But I didn't have the lens, the theoretical lens and knowledge to really understand. All I knew is that the situation was terrible. So I think it is important for new teachers to get that grounding in the first three years. And, and the only answer you get from the school is, oh, it's the poor kids and their families don't care about education, right? No, that's not why all of this is happening, right? So if you don't get that knowledge early, then it's not going to sustain you. During my master's in teaching program, we didn't have a single class. There was nothing about like racial social justice work in education or like school to prison pipeline issues or explicit or implicit bias or curriculum that's inauthentic and lies. You know, none of that was taught at all. It wasn't until I started doing union work that I even realized that there were university chapters of NEA. Like, I didn't even know that that was a thing. We didn't have it at the university I was at for my master's in teaching. But I definitely waited to go full out after I was tenured. So I waited the three years. I got myself tenured. The teacher in the building who had approached me and was saying, I remember you as a student. Go to the, you need to be a union rep. She also knew me, and I'm, I'm pretty outspoken. I don't really, like, I, I take a lot of risks. And, and so she knew that about me. So she was saying, look, like, I know you're a risk taker, but you should probably wait your three years, make sure you're tenured, um, and then go full out. And so I became a union rep after three years and started noticing issues that were within our own association and within the union. And joining the union after three years being a building rep, it helped guide my leadership, I really think. So I guess that three-year mark, I would say focus on getting through it. 
I do think there needs to be much more pre-service work. I don't think it's there's ever a time that's too early to start. I would say that you need to make sure that you're solid in your foundation of teaching because you also don't want to be out there fighting for things and being a voice and then not be well equipped in your classroom because then you're not a good representative of an educator. You have to be able to talk the talk in your classroom and then also outside of that. So get yourself tenured three years, but really starting that process of pre-service I think is super important. Yeah, and I'm, I'm able to bring that into my work as a teacher educator, which is really important in different ways. And I think that also helped propelled me the more I was able to talk about it and teach about it. I got to develop a writing class for freshmen on any topic I wanted related to the discipline of education, so we the whole course was on fighting against standardized testing. Are you more than a score was the name of the class. And they're freshmen, they just came out of high school, they know about all the testing they've been through, and they were floored to one find out they didn't have to go through it. What are you talking about opt-out? It's so funny, because then I get emails after I talk to young people about opt-out from someone, like, why are you telling my kid this? Is this legal? I'm like, it's very legal. <laughs> I think teaching about it has been really helpful in pre-service, and it's still hard because they're like, well, what are you telling me? I should not take this job in this field? Like, no, I did, you just gotta go into it with your eyes open. It's going to help you sustain yourself a little bit longer if you know what you're getting into ahead of time. I wish I would have had a professor like Denisha in my pre-service. Thanks for listening to School Me, and a quick thank you to all of the NEA members listening. If you have a question for one of our experts or just need some support as you're getting your career started, please leave us a message on our line at 240-780-8329. That's 240-780-8329 and your voicemail might be played on air. You can also email your question to us at schoolmeplease at nea.org. That's schoolmeplease, all one word, at nea.org. Well, let's start talking about Black Lives Matter at school. So how did you get involved in the coalition? In 2017, a group of teachers from Philadelphia did the Working Educators Caucus. Did a, they just posted on Facebook, like, we're doing a Black Lives Matter at school week-long curriculum. I was like, what? And like, they just give a link to a Google folder and all the resources are there. And I hadn't really heard about Seattle then. So it started in Seattle in 2016, where they had planned to do a day of support for black students in schools. But then Philadelphia then took the 13 guiding principles from Black Lives Matter National Organization and developed this week-long curriculum. So that's when I first found out about it. Um, And I thought that was really cool. And I encouraged them to submit a proposal to a conference that was happening later in 2017 called Free Mind, Free People. It was being held in Baltimore so that they can come and talk about what they did and so we both attended and from there we signed up they did like a send a sign-in sheet and then after that we got emailed and then we were both on the national group Seattle first then Philadelphia and Rochester mm-hmm. were the first three places that had done either a day or a week and then in 2017 there are about 20 cities and then 2018 there are probably 30 or more right. um, and so each year it's just growing so for those of us who don't know very much about Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. as a movement overall and Black Lives Matter at school in particular. In your own words, how would you describe what happens during Black Lives Matter at school week of action? So for the most part, it's it's an attempt for teachers to, to be a part of Black Lives Matter. So it's a separate organization. They're, they're not affiliated. We've gotten some support from the original founders of Black Lives Matter, like Opal Tometi and Alicia Garza are aware and supporting. And then local, like DC, might reach out to the DC Black Lives Matter chapter to let them know what we're doing and to work with them. But it's a separate organization. But I think for educators, it was a way to be a part of that movement 
engagement in your work that you do in schools. So what it is, it's a week-long curriculum. Teachers are teaching lessons around the 13 principles. But then in addition to that, there are events that we're planning around the community that look at the demand. So it's this bringing together for a week both teachers, students, community members, parents to like do the lessons in school, do the activities in the community, and to really just kind of support the week. And then, then the push for the demands all year long, right? So it's like a starting point almost. We use the 13 guiding principles, but it's its own separate kind of grassroots group. So I don't want to quiz you about the principles, okay. <laughs> but what are the key lessons that you are trying to teach during this week? I've done two years. So the first year I focused a lot on looking at all of the issues that are happening. The reason I used the curriculum I did last year is because in Baltimore we had the murder of Freddie Gray and the students were very impacted by what happened. And so what we did was we watched the documentary 13th. Um, we talked a lot about police brutality. We did a mixer that was actually created by Jesse Hagopian in Seattle about the Black Panthers. And we did a lot of looking at historical facts that they do not get in their social studies classes. And they were saying like, I can't believe like you're the first teacher to like introduce us to any of this. Like all they learned is like the slave trade. They term it the slave trade, not even like the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples, right? It's like, you're the slave trade and that's all they learn. And so a lot of it was looking at like historical issues and how it relates to modern day issues and how things, what has changed, what hasn't changed. But I found that at the end of that week, it was very draining and a lot of the students were just exhausted after that week. This year I decided to focus more on loving engagement and uplifting of black life and making it more about recognizing the king and queen in each student and how they identify themselves. And the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think we use those more as a way to guide our events around those 13 principles. The curriculum was a little bit different than that. So the curriculum was just focused on those two things that I mentioned and also using Teaching for Black Lives, the book. And so I think the principles are more about the events. But I do know that there are educators that align each of their days with the guiding principles. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something that I was intentional about. I could be intentional about it. But I really focused more on what I felt my students wanted out of that week, what I felt they needed out of that week, and that's how I planned the curriculum. Yeah, and I think the difference is the levels, right? Teaching high school versus teaching elementary and middle school, and I'm at the college level. So my teaching looks very different around it. I only see my students once or twice a week during the week. They want to be their spying teachers, so I usually introduce it as curriculum and how, you know, review the lesson plans and that sort of thing and what's being taught to the children and is it developmentally appropriate for young children. I work with a group of early childhood teachers who are doing the week of action and using literature. And so we are focusing on the principles because at the really young level, it's important that you lay a foundation of, like you said, like black joy and black liberation and not so much slavery and oppression and all that. So you start, you know, your first day talking about love and empathy and respect, right? And then you get into diversity and globalism and then you get into trans affirming, queer affirming, collective value. Um, and then you get into the whole idea of intergenerational black families, black villages. And then lastly, unapologetically black and black women. So it's this progression of foundation where, yes, we all know our history through the lens of Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, you know, Malcolm X, if you're lucky, Sojourner Truth, you know, but it's more than that. We're really looking at literature for black children that's not about all of those things, but still uplifts black families and black lives so that the younger children get this really solid foundation. And then when they head into the upper grades, you start getting into some of the meat of the history, right? But for us, like you need that 
solid, positive foundation first to then build upon that. So we're trying to develop that more in early childhood, but a lot of the middle school and high school lessons are more getting critical about those narratives, right? Really critiquing the book Erica mentioned, Teaching for Black Lives, to teach about slavery, to talk about presidents owning slaves. And what does that mean, right? And really focusing it on that, and not so much that, yes, we know there was slavery, but you know, how do we reconcile our American government and the leaders of the government as slave owners? And then looking at the Taino Indians and how they partnered with the slaves and, and did revolt. So that's an important message to get through. So how you teach these tough concepts matter too, right? We don't just teach them from one lens of, and a lot of the lens is black inferiority is how a lot of black history comes across. So I think the work we're trying to do, whether it's young children focusing on the principles or older children is to break that black inferiority lens and to kind of shift the view on how we teach those subjects. We looked at kingdoms and the idea of each student, because I teach 99.9% .9 black students, about what is the king and queen in each of you and thinking about what comes to mind when you think about kingdoms and their first thought is like British monarchs and empires. Like they don't associate kingdoms and royalty with black history at all. And so to break that narrative first and foremost was really important. And then to have each student really identify like what makes me royal, like what makes me of royal blood. And that concept of like, I am more than this inferiority crap that I hear all the time. I'm more than that, you know, I'm more than victimization and oppression. Um, I am actually this. And I think looking at that, that history of kingdoms in Africa, and then that's the origins, right? It's not slavery. Like a lot of history books start off, your history starts with enslavement. Mm -hmm. and, and to say, no, 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 that is not true. History starts with kingdoms and empires and not you know monarchy as this oppressive force either. It was really kingdoms that uplifted all peoples in that community or in that village or whatever. And we were able to actually this year get to the discussion of reparations. So I actually went to DC public schools my whole life, graduated from DC public schools, and this is definitely not the way that history was taught to me at all. And I know that perhaps not everyone will agree, and I'm sure we'll get into that later, but how do you feel like the response to this approach to teaching history, and you know, it's unfortunate that it's only a week, right? But one thing at a time, how has the response been from your point of view to nationwide or throughout just like your states in terms of approaching history and, and talking about blackness this way in school? It's been different depending on who you're talking to, right? When I tell that speech about, you know, what, what do we start with? I said, well, you know, I always compare. I said, do young, when young Jewish children start school, is it like day one, Holocaust? And they're like, no, of course not. I'm like, exactly, why would you start that? That's not a good place to start. You got other things to start about and then you eventually get there. And I'm like, but why with young children is it okay with five-year-olds to start talking about slavery without it? And then they're kind of shocked because one, they've been doing it that way not really realizing. So I think the response from a lot of teachers, they get it, but even though they weren't aware. I'll write a blog, I write blogs for Defending the Early Years, another organization I work with, and um, you know, I said all early childhood teachers need to support Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action, and the comments are just like, it's a terrorist organization, I can't believe you would do this, and, you know, and it's like, so there's that kind of pushback where the words, the three simple words, Black Lives Matter, can scare so many people off, right? Either they're taught, like with Black Panthers, that it's a terrorist organization, they're violent, they're anti-cop, and so they're automatically on the defensive, 
or then there's the all lives matter crowd who just think it's wrong to focus on one group to the expense of other groups. And then there are people who want to support, but they don't know how, and they don't know, you know what to do. So I think there's a spectrum you know, that I see a lot. We get a lot of teachers who want to do the work, they just don't feel comfortable. Like, are they, you know, can they teach it, and how should they teach it, and that sort of thing. So it's been interesting, but for the most part, the parents get it, the teachers get it. Like, some pe random people will see me in the shirt and be like, oh yeah, that's so important, right? And other people look like they want to hit me if they could. You know? So it's very, it's very interesting. To, uh, to, to see the different responses. I too have seen varied responses. I had parents that were on our planning committee this year. I had had their students in previous years and they were crying and saying, you know, like really excited that this was happening in Howard County because they felt like their children's lives were never a priority or uplifted in school. But it's also, I think, very based on where you are in your community, right? Mm -hmm. Like my particular school is majority black and brown students and families and so the response was really positive from parents and community members. Overall, in my entire county, we had various reactions. We had a lot of parents reaching out and saying, or parents in the whiter neighborhoods, we have, we're very segregated in my county, incredibly segregated. We had some parents that were saying the same things that Denisha was mentioning, like Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization, I can't believe you're associating with this, Howard County is supposed to be inclusive, like this is not inclusivity, this is exclusive, blah, blah, blah. We had school board members that we actually brought a resolution. The organizing committee wrote a resolution for our Board of Ed and brought it for a vote to support a resolution on the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action. And we had board members that abstained because they said they needed to do more research and that it was fiscally irresponsible. And the response to that was, you know, there's no financial component to this resolution. It's a belief statement. And also, you know, what research do you need? Like Black Lives Matter, done. <laughs> um, and so it actually was in, in the end worse for them because they've been deemed by members of the community more around where I live as, you know, calling them for what, what it is. You know, that was racist and this is, this is how racism manifests, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they're very much on the defensive at this point. But looking at the movement and how it's grown, oh, yeah. I think is, is very telling. And the endorsements that have happened. Every year we get more and more endorsements by education associations across the country. We get more people reaching out like, how do I bring this to our school? How do I bring this to my town? Our sessions were packed mm -hmm. to the brim. More and more people are on the national calls. I mean, I think it's definitely spreading. And I think that overall, I'm seeing, what I'm seeing at least, is a growing movement of support. And especially in the times that we're living right now, not that this has never been, the, I mean, this has been the United States for 400 years. This is the fabric of the United States is built on racism and genocide and oppression. But to see that movement growing, especially now, I think people are like, okay, like this is really super important at this point. So let's say that we have an early career educator who is white and working in a mostly white school or school district, but let's just keep it to the school for now. How would you recommend that they bring either Black Lives Matter at school in its full package or just start moving pieces of this into their lesson plans? We had someone from Edmonds, Washington join our national group, and he's a white educator and in a predominantly white district. And so he's been baby stepping it, trying to find one more teacher of color to bring into the mix. And like, I think his week was really just the events. I'm not sure if he was able to get a critical mass of teachers to do the curriculum or if he did it himself, right? So sometimes it just starts small like that. I know last year in Howard County, they used a community organization to do all the events. And so one of them, like Friday, was like teach a lesson, right? Because they hadn't gotten the support from their local union to make sure everyone's doing in school. So when people email me and ask me, you know, how do I get involved? And I think if they're already doing events in your area, then you should join them. If you want to start teaching it in your school, you do need to get other 
teachers and educators who might want to join you, right? Or I have students who reach out to me a lot, high school students email us. Oh, why is this not happening at my school? How do I get this happening? So again, looking for that one teacher who might be supportive, getting them on board and then seeing what we can do. And so I think the levels of engagement really vary depending, and not so much as who you're teaching. I mean, I think we clearly, Black Lives Matter at school is for everyone. It's white kids need this, you know, African-American kids need this, Latinx kids need this. In my college, 35% are dreamers and DACA students. And so I remember when I had the conversation with them at first, I was like, how are they going to respond? And the prompt was in schools where Black Lives Matter, you know, and they were okay with that. They could talk about, they went to school with black people and they get that black people aren't treated well in school, even if they don't identify as black. So there wasn't a really issue there. And I, you know, I asked my students, does it seem dismissive to you if we're not saying black and brown and we're just saying black? And, and, and they're like, they were totally getting it. So I think depending on your makeup, there's still room for this. It's just how you approach it. But getting the support, I think, is harder when you're the only person in your school. And, and sometimes you got to be creative. Our librarian at our college found out and she ran with it. And I, she didn't need to get permission from anybody because she had her own budget to do her own things. And so that was really helpful that I could then work with her and partner with her instead of keep trying to ask the provost. You know, I mean, the provost was supportive, but it was nice that we had that. So sometimes those other people who, are, who can do the work is really helpful. There are two educators in Washington State, Terry Jess and Luke Mishner, who do anti-racist primers and trainings for white educators. They're both white males, and they were very active in the Black Lives Matter Week of Action, and their work is always around racial justice and racial equity, and they focus a lot on how to be not just not racist, but anti-racist, like in your actions for white educators. And a lot of what they say is that like all in all, white people really, you should be on the front lines risking yourself and your bodies and your, you know, you should be, you should be willing to take the brunt of retaliation for something that if you really are truly anti-racist in yourself, like you should open up yourself to vulnerability of being retaliated against or dealing with all of the potential consequences of doing anti-racist work and racial justice work. And so they were able to engage, they have majority white students, majority white school district, and two white males, and they were able to bring the week of action and uplift the voices that are not typically heard or affirmed in that area of Washington state. And so I would definitely recommend reaching out to them. They are amazing and can definitely show how to pave the path for all of the challenges that come with being white educators or teaching in a majority white space. At at a workshop we we recently conducted, there was a young white girl from Utah who really wants to, like, get this started and not sure. And, you know, so one of the things I said, well, you know, coming from you, it's going to be really powerful for you to go to your administrator and say, we need a Black Lives Matter week of action. And then also, you know, she mentioned being part of her LGBT group at her school and then maybe using that platform that I said in the support, the one or two maybe students of color you might have at the school in Utah and say, hey, we, we want to give you guys space to create this. Like, if we could, you know, be your sponsoring organization or whatever it takes and so but really knowing that it's important to have those people we have a lot of issues in one of the schools by where I live in DC but in Maryland had a lot of racial issues recently come out videos of kids saying the n-word and some other things and my thinking after hearing all of this is like the school is majority white, but okay, not every white kid in that school is a racist. So where are the non-racist white students who are actually like, no, these kids don't stand for us. And so when you do have white kids at the school taking on Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action, it shows, right, that there are people at the school who don't all think that way, right? And so we need to show that this is for them too. Like if they were jumping behind this movement and then it would show that like that's an isolated incident and it's not everyone in the school, but they don't have that. No one's bringing it to them, right? So you either have the kids who are being outright racist and then you 
kids are just being silent, right? And so how do we get those silent kids to push back against that? And one of the ways is to make sure that they have, you know, this avenue and others within their school districts. So if a person wants to bring the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action to their school, when do you think they should start preparing? If they're going from zero, like mm-hmm. they hear this podcast and they're like, yes, I'm in, when do you think they need to start preparing? How long does it take? How should they get themselves started? I think it really depends on how involved they're going to get, right? So if people email the email all the time, and i one of the people who check it regularly. And so the first thing we do is send you to our website. All of the resources are there. And so I, I always ask, well, where are you? If we know of something already happening in your area, then we're going to point you in that direction and say, this is the group, right? meet up with them. If you don't, then we're going to say a couple things you can do. Are you a teacher? Do you have other teachers in your school? And then, you know, you're going to have to present this to your administrators, your parents, and say, I want to teach this and get other people. So maybe you're doing it school level. Maybe you're not. And then I say, well, you can, oh, I can't do it in my school. Okay, do you want to plan some events in the community and support it that way? So starting early is important. We're about to start. I call it August. Our Sunday start, get every other Sunday to these hour and a half long Zoom meetings that we do. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And people join later. We'll start in August to getting the steering committee ready, getting the national group ready. And then we did a lot of outreach this year, this past year. We did webinars to get more people involved. So we start that early on. But I think a lot of the planning starts going in September and October because you want to make sure, one, that teachers are familiar with the curriculum and the materials and they're ready to teach it. And planning the events takes a lot of time because you're trying to get speakers and locations. And so have people showed up in January and say, I want to do this and do it, yeah, but they most likely taught the curriculum and might not have been able to pull off an event that quickly, or maybe they could. So, But we would say it's important to get the school year started off, right, so earlier in September, because then you get bogged down with other things and you might not be thinking about it, and then you blink your eye and it's January 5th and you're like, oh no, I haven't even done anything yet. So early in the fall semester is a really good time. I remember last year, NEA had passed a Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action NBI. And so I remember like right after the RA, I believe it was in July, in we, July had a, yeah. we had a meeting yeah. and on, we had our first meeting to talk about what's going on, what are our plans, and that's when we, yeah, so we started in July mm-hmm. um, getting ready to go. It's really important to start as early as humanly possible because you really want to think it through well and, and make sure that you're able to do all the things that you want to do. So the earlier the better. When we're talking about young educators or rather new educators who maybe haven't gotten to their space of tenure yet or are still a little shaky, but even for those who are on more solid ground, I think in any career you're worried about just like surviving the job and every day making it through. So if you have a passion for this and want to bring it to your school but are feeling kind of overwhelmed just by doing your job, do you have any tips for how to handle that and what they should do if they find themselves very tired, but very passionate. If you're tired, I hear you. I mean, I don't know how yeah. the teachers do it. I mean, I teach college, so my schedule's a lot more flexible, but these teachers work 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. or 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., then they come jump on these calls and they do these events, and it is hard. But I think it's also, it feeds your soul. Like, yeah. you're a part of it that yeah. feels good, and I think that's what you have to let drive you in it. Because I can imagine the work, I mean, we're all exhausted, we're all super busy, it's a lot of challenges, but when I hear the teachers talking about their plan for that week, or if we're able, we get so tired we almost don't debrief because it's like nobody wants to get on a 
another phone call. <laughs> but, you know, we see the tweets going out and the photos going out during the week, and we see all the things that people are doing. I think that's where the sustaining comes from. Yeah. So, you know, and, and for me, it's like, I don't know, to be a teacher and to not do this type of work now would be impossible for me. Yeah. It just wouldn't be possible to sustain. And it wasn't possible. I couldn't stay being a teacher because I didn't have this kind of work to support what I was doing, and I didn't know it was even existed, that you could create a curriculum that is uplifting for your children, right, and for your students. Yeah, I think, honestly, like, find your people. Like, I call, like, all the people that do this work are, like, my soul family. Like, mm -hmm. they're the people that sustain me and keep me going. You're going to be tired. Like, you have to just make that choice mentally. Like, mm -hmm. how tired do you want to be? And honestly, like Denisha said, like, this is the type of work that keeps me in education. Like, if I didn't have this work outside, I don't know if I would be an educator at this point because the day-to-day -day educating, and again, it's never the students. The students are what give me light and hope every day. I can breathe when I'm around them. It's all of the other issues. Mm -hmm. And so having this work is what keeps me going. I would say like really focus on self-care if possible. I don't think we do enough of that, but like community care as well, like healing spaces and find your people that keep you going and keep you motivated. And also like just to chill. <laughs> like be able to relax and have yeah. fun as well. And we do. We start off with check-in, see how people are yeah. doing. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's definitely a good group to, sometimes you need to vent. <laughs> Guess what my admin said about this today, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we give each other support and resources. Like, oh, this is what I used when I was in that situation. You know, yeah. we had a teacher in D.C. who works at a preschool, and the director was just like, well, I don't know how to talk with parents about this, and some of the teachers weren't sure. So I showed up and talked to them during their lunch break about it and, and, and how could you address parental concerns, you might say. Why are we focusing on this, you know? And so it's important to just support them. I've Skyped in the people's classrooms and meetings to talk when we can. And so finding people who will say, yeah, I can come talk to your group, or yeah, I can share this is really helpful. What advice would you give your younger self? With all the experience that you've had in education, your life, both of you have talked a lot about I wouldn't be in education if I weren't doing this work alongside it and woven within it. But what would you say to your younger self in your first couple of years of teaching, knowing everything you know now? I loved going to school as a young person more than anything. It was like I had perfect attendance until my senior year of high school when I got a little senioritis. But, uh, you know, I loved it. And I went in thinking that everyone did, for the most part. So to, I tell my younger self, like, you are an exceptional anomaly when it comes to that. Most people who look like you did not have really good school experiences. I mean, my love for knowledge and learning showed to most of my teachers. So that was able to overcome any other type of stereotype. You know, most people don't have that. And if they don't display this love of knowledge and learning constantly, teachers devalue them because of the color of their skin or because of their gender or something, or because their family's poor, right? And so that's not normal. I, I didn't realize that until halfway through that kindergarten year. And I'm like, it's not. These kids are young and they're showing me that they don't get that kind of interaction in school not, I mean, for me, yes, but not from other people, right? And so it was very, I think that was a big wake-up call, just that my experience. And so I spent a lot of time with my pre-service teachers thinking about their own educational experience, whether it was good or not and positive and the family support they had, and then how that might vary. So what does that mean for someone who doesn't have that same experience, but we all coming into the same functioning place. And that's the other thing. School is the sorting function. It's not this great meritocracy that we all think it is, right? And it, it really just there to mask a lot of the inequities that we see in society and in a way to funnel them through specific doors. And so I think 
you know, we go, sometimes we go and we're like, oh, education is going to, education is not going to save the United States of America or this world or this country or whatever. It's right. It's not going to do all of that. It has some power, but it's really about the individuals who are involved and what and how they're doing it. If you come in and all you see are students and families and it's all their fault. Well, poor families are poor because they don't work hard enough. They shouldn't have babies they can't afford. Then you're just reproducing these same issues. You're not getting past all that. So how do you undo these narratives that have really framed your thinking that's really hurtful to black and brown children, right? And so I think if I knew all that, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have picked teaching as a career. <laughs> no, I probably would have, but it would have just been a very much different experience to come in with that knowledge ahead of time. I'm going to focus this just on teaching. I think I would have told my early educator career self that like the number one most important thing that I had to learn over time was well actually three things one the students are not going to respect you just because you're standing up in front of a room um, you have to earn their respect and you never know what students have been through what their educational experience has been what teachers have smushed them to the ground and kicked all the joy out of them and what teachers have not done that and you know what their strengths are and what their hopes and dreams are and so they, they need to see you and see you as that you care and that I don't expect my students to respect me ever. Now I have a reputation in my building, so I know that students come in knowing who I am, not knowing me yet, but knowing who I am in the building. Just because you're an educator and you're standing up in front of a classroom of kids does not mean they, have, they owe you respect or that they are going to respect you. You have to earn it every single day. And the way that you do that is through building relationships with students. I'm trained in restorative justice and a restorative educator. And the number one thing I focus on in the beginning of the year and throughout the year is relationships and building those relationships with my students and getting to know them and forming that bond and allowing them to feel safe in a room. Teaching is not content. If you think you want to be an educator because you want to teach science, you're in the wrong profession. It is not about teaching content. Content is part of it, but you are truly teaching a human being and you are their make or break it. One thing that you can say to a student can make or break their life. I remember educators that said things to me that I will never forget. And then I remember the ones that affirmed me as a human being and gave me that dignity and made me feel valued and worth it. Because I never got any of that pre-service talk, really, it was like, how do I teach Spanish? And I knew I wanted to be racial justice-minded and social justice-minded in my content, and I still am, but it is so not about that. It is all about relationship building with your kids and creating that safe space for them to come in and know that you can be that person in the building that they come to. And, that's why I teach. I teach because I love my students. I love them. It makes me want to cry. Like, I love them so much. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, okay, like, if I am risking my job to protect my kids or to do what's right by them, then I will. Like, if that means my job is gone, then my job is gone. And I know that I will not participate in anything that harms my kids. And I will fight against everything that harms my kids. And that's what I would tell my first three years of teaching self. Erica, Denisha, it's been really amazing to talk to you guys. I feel like I've learned a lot and you've made me rethink a lot of my experiences as a kid. <laughs> so thank you for joining us on School Me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of School Me. And if you find this podcast helpful, be sure to rate and review the show. It helps more people find us and the advice they need to survive their first few years in education. For even more tips and resources, you can visit us at neatoday.org slash school me.